0: Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. One le- we're going to take one last look at the Beatitudes uh, this morning. So this is the word of our Lord, Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you this is the word of our lord let us pray together glorious god we thank you for this passage we pray that you speak to us we pray that your spirit be upon us. We pray, Father, that we would indeed be found to be meek and hungry and thirsty. For asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If you are one of those people who follow my notes that I post on Friday morning during the sermon, you're going to be highly frustrated today. I really reworked the notes quite a bit since uh, Friday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. So it might be proper for you to put that aside for now and just look at back maybe uh, later. We come to the Beatitudes once again. We're going to finish, uh, Lord willing, today the uh, Beatitudes. And then uh, next Lord's Day, we are going to, uh, Lord willing, baptize Malachi Hunter. And then the following Sunday, Lord willing, we'll go back to our series on Ephesians. You may not believe me anymore when I say that, but this still is the plan. I do intend that every time I say it. Just providentially, sometimes it doesn't work that way. And as we uh, we look at the Beatitudes, as we work our way through it one last time uh, this morning... I want, us to, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions right off the bat. And I want you to be thinking about these questions throughout. I should have written them in the bulletin so that it would be easier for you to actually follow, follow them. But I want you to think about this. Ask yourself, on what is my heart set? On what is my heart? Heart set. What is it that controls you? What is the first thing that you think about when you wake up in the morning? What's the last thing that you think about before you close your eyes at night? What is your heart set on? What is vital for your life? Without blank, I cannot be happy. And when you're done answering these questions, I have another one that I'd like you to ask yourself. And this is it. Have I known what it is to be blessed? Have I known what it is to be happy? To be truly happy? To be truly satisfied? Because, because happiness, joy, and satisfaction, biblically speaking, are synonymous. A happy person is a satisfied person. A joyful person is a satisfied person. So have I known what it is to be blessed? Blessed. And as we look at the Beatitudes, Christ opened for us the way of blessedness Blessedness in these Beatitudes. We've seen that the word blessed is also the word for happy, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. So in the mind of God, the blessed person is the happy person. This morning we're going to consider the two Beatitudes that we skipped. I don't know if you noticed that, but we skipped two Beatitudes kind of in the middle there. Uh, which is in verses 5 and 6. And that's what we're going to try to do today. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that Christians are, by definition, considerate and, uh, and humble people? That by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, Christ declares us to be that. Remember the Beatitudes have that tension between what we already are and what we're becoming. The tension between the already and the not yet. And we in Christ are already the considerate people. We are already the humble people. And we continue to strive towards that. The Christian is called to a life of kindness. We see that. In verse 5, we're called to a life of looking out for the interest of others. Christians are meek people. Christians are also called to be meek. And meekness is one of those words that is difficult to define. It's like fluffy. Fluffy is difficult to define without equating it to something. Now, the pillow is fluffy. And so that's not a definition. Uh, it's difficult to define fluffy without using your hands. You know, fluffy. That's what meekness is. It's one of those words that's difficult to define, but not impossible. Meekness is related to poverty in spirit. As God already told us through Christ that we are pau- poor in spirit. And if you think about poverty in spirit, in spirit describing our relationship to God, meekness describes our relationship to one another. Poverty in spirit describes our relationship to God because of what we know concerning us and what we know concerning God. We are poor in spirit because we know who we are and we know who God is. Meekness describes our relationship to one another, our fellow humans, because of the same thing. Because we know who God is and we know who we are. When we come to know God, we come to know our sinfulness. There's no, such a thing, there's no such a thing as one who believes in Christ Jesus, who at some point of his or her life have not realized that they were a sinner. That, that's part of the Christian experience. That has to be there. And when we come to know our sinfulness, we cast ourselves on the mercy of the Lord. And as we find that grace and comfort with God, then true humility is worked out in us. At the same time, grace is that grace is working in us. Meekness results from that, from the grace of God at work in us, and we begin to relate consider, considerately and humbly toward one another. Do you get that, brothers and sisters? That the marking the 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 tr- most preeminent characteristic of our relationship to one another is humility, is meekness, is loving humility. It is preferring one another in love. Meekness is the, the humble strength of the person who has learned to submit to difficulties. Meekness results when a person enters into the presence of God and knows that he ought to be judged. And yet, he has found grace in the sight of God instead. The result of that, when you realize that, that you were to be judged, that you and I were to be judged before the sight of God, and yet, he says, I love you because of Jesus Christ. Humility has to be what follows from there. Because you and I have been forgiven, then we show humility and forgiveness to each other. Meekness is the result of God's grace in our hearts where we have seen what we deserve. Have you ever stared at the face of God and seen what you deserve? The pains of the miseries of this life and the pain of hell forever? So meekness is a result of beholding that in the face of God and knowing that we have not gotten what we deserve Brothers and sisters, do you realize that none of us here in this glorious room, if we can call it that, glorious space, have not gotten what we deserve? It doesn't matter what you're going through, you have not gotten what you deserve. You've gotten the grace of God bestowed upon you. So, when we realize that, then we show that same kind of consideration to others. For, remember what our Lord says, for those who have been forgiven much will love much. And we can change that by saying that those who have been forgiven much will, be, will also forgive much. Isn't that what our Lord says in Matthew 18 where we have this guy that's forgiven a, a debt of billions of dollars, yet he's not able to forgive a debt of 100000 or $10,000 against him because somehow... He didn't realize how much he had been forgiven. forgiven, Can you think of two examples of meekness in the Bible? There's two people in the Bible that are, are focused upon when meekness is talked about. I'll give you one. I'll give you the easy one. The one is Jesus. Right? Which is really the answer for anything you ask at church. If you say Jesus, somehow that's going to be the right answer. But who's the other one? that is often portrayed as a meek person worthy of our imitation. It's Moses. As a matter of fact, the book of Numbers says that Moses is the meekest man on earth. Now, we know that that hasn't always been the case for him. Meekness... Moses was a man of, of great education, a man of learning, a man of considerable personal force and charm. And if you doubt me, just watch the Prince of Egypt. It tells you all that in that movie. Now we, we know that we know in the beginning of his career that he often used his power actually for uh, in the wrong ways. For example, one thing we don't realize is that remember in the episode where he killed an Egyptian who was beating up by a. Uh, a uh, Hebrew slave. And he goes and kills the Egyptian and, uh, and then goes away. In the book of Exodus, we don't realize that. But when you look at Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, there Stephen says that he was doing that because he thought that that's how God was going to use him, Moses, to deliver God's people. By his own strength and might. By killing the Egyptians and freeing the Hebrews. And God says, No, that's not how I'm going to do that. Moses, I'm not going to do because you're a gifted guy. I'm not going to do it because you have the strength to do that. I actually have training for you, Moses. I'm going to send you to the desert for 40 years. In preparation for another 40 years in the desert. And the Lord sent him into the wilderness for 40 years to train him in meekness. Remember how Moses was when he was again discovered by the Lord in the desert? He wasn't the guy ready to go kill the Egyptians, was he? He, was, he had gone extra to the other side, perhaps too much, and said, Lord, I can't do this. I, can't, I stutter. I can't talk. And God said, Moses, haven't you gotten it yet? It's not you that matters. It's me. I'm the one that's going to be working through you. And when Moses came back, he never again used his own personality and force to build up his own reputation or to pursue his own agenda. And as I said, in Numbers chapter 12, we're told that Moses was the meekest man on earth. The the exercise of his character was on behalf of the cause of God. And he let God defend him. And that's another trait of meekness, people of God. We're not so worried about our reputation. We're worried about God's reputation. We fight for God's reputation, not for us, for ours. We let God defend us. We fight for God, and that's it. Don't worry about what people say about us. Only if it's true. If it's true, then repent and follow God. But we fight for God's reputation. Um, Matthew Harry says that a lion in God's cause must be a lamb in his own cause. A lion in God's cause must be a lamb in his own cause. Have you ever noticed how Christians are more worried about the second table of the law than they are about the first table of the law? Uh, Have you ever seen that Christians are more outraged by when they are lied to? Or when somebody harmed them physically? Or when kids don't obey? Or when the spouse commits adultery than they are when the name of the Lord is taken in vain? Or the Sabbath day is desecrated? Or when uh, idols are created or other gods are put before him? We tend to be more indignant about the things that are done to us than the things that are done to God. That's not meekness. Meekness doesn't care about ourselves. Meekness cares about the honor of God. The meek person is ready to say, I will not stand on my rights. I will not demand to have my way. I will be concerned about the interests of others and about the cause of God. And I'll let God take care of me. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 when he says, Hey, I have all kinds of rights. I have the right to take my wife around if I had one. I have the right to get paid for the proclamation of the gospel. I have the right to do all these things and yet I divest myself of all my rights so that one more soul can be added to the kingdom of God. So Moses is one of those examples of meekness. But ultimately, our ultimate example of meekness is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is he who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you find rest for your souls. Your Savior is a meek Savior. He was not concerned about his own interests, was he? As a matter of fact, remember his prayer before the crucifixion? Father, take this cup away. But if it's your will, I'll drink it. It wasn't for himself he went to the cross, but for you. For your your interests. And that's why Paul, when he's teaching us about this idea that we are to, to think of others more highly than ourselves. By the way, you don't find anywhere in the Bible a command to think highly of yourself. There's nowhere where it says, you know, you're thinking too lowly of yourself. Your self-esteem is a little low. Let's boost that up. You need to think more highly of yourself. You need to learn to love yourself before you can love others. That's not in the Bible. You might find it in the Oprah magazine, but not in the Bible. Time and again, God tells us through the Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, don't think so highly of yourself. Consider Jesus. Isn't that the mind that we're supposed to have, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, that we are to consider others' interests above ourselves? And it says, "Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ." What was the mind? That He, being God Himself, did not consider being equal with God something that should keep Him from becoming human, and He divested Himself of all that glory, was incarnated, became like us, which is by itself was a humiliation for Him. And He humbled Himself to the death of the cross so that you and I could be exalted. And that's why James says, humble yourself before God and He will lift you up. The same God who raised Jesus on the third day because He humbled Himself is the God who lifts us up. If we're meek in His sight. If you are about His cause, He will defend His people. And on top of that, this beatitude tells us that the meek will inherit the earth. How? Counterintuitive is it? How countercultural I should say is this: that the meek is going to inherit it. It's not the one who takes it by force. It's not the one who's fighting for all their rights. It's the meek who's going to inherit the earth, as God had promised to Abraham that he was going to heir, be the heir of the whole world. So are those who are the meek. They will find that God gives them the world, and in in all of the the beatitudes, you find this paradox of gaining by losing. And that's actually part of the whole Bible, that we gain by losing. Seek your own agenda, seek your own success, seek your own happiness, and you'll never find it. But seek first the kingdom of God, and you find blessings that you cannot even imagine. Isn't that what Paul tells us at the end of Philippians 3? That we have a God who is able to do more than what we can ask Him. And if that was enough, he says, and or even imagine that he could do. And he does that for the meek. Have you ever heard of Francis of Assisi? Uh, Usually his statues have birds and animals all around him because he truly believed that he needed to preach the gospel to every creature. And he took that very literally and meant like every living like animal and so on. And he would often be found proclaiming the gospel to the kitty cats and to the dogs and to the birds and all that. But Francis, after which the current Roman Catholic Pope is named, left behind a prayer that I think most of us have heard before. But as a prayer that really touches on this idea of meekness of preferring others rather than ourselves. And and Francis encourages us to pray the following prayer. Lord, grant unto us not so much to be consoled, but to console. Grant unto us not so much to be understood as to understand. Grant unto us not so much to be loved, but to love. I grew up going to Catholic schools all my life through high school. And uh, pretty much every chapel we sang this song. So it's kind of ingrained in... In my head, and when I first came to faith in Christ in the Protestant context, I repudiated it. How can anything come good from that? But this is our tradition, isn't it? This is prior 15:17. And Francis is as much as ours as it is the Roman Catholic Church. And this prayer is truly a biblical prayer that we should be praying. And I want you to make sure, to, to, to make sure you understand that this type of meekness is not the stuff for weaklings. Weak people cannot be as meek as the Bible calls them to be. Because perhaps you as a wife are called to display Christian meekness in a marital relationship where your husband doesn't appreciate anything you do. And you cannot do that if you're weakling in Christ. Perhaps you, are, you as a husband are called to display Christian meekness in a marriage where your wife is a proverbial quarrelsome woman that you just feel like going to the top of your, ha- your house and sitting on the corner. You can't do that if you are not strong in Christ. Perhaps you are called to be a husband or a wife in a miserable marriage and for the sake of Christ you abdicate your rights as a witness for Him. That's not for weaklings. Perhaps you are a man called to work in a business world, in the business world where you are taken advantage of because you walk in the way of Christ. Or perhaps you, your standards cause you to be abused or mocked, and perhaps they cause you to actually suffer loss financially. And perhaps you see the wicked around you prospering. Yet, because Christ has worked meekness in you. You abdicate your own rights and you look for the interests of others. And you do that. You do all that because at the end, what it matters is God's righteousness. You do all that because at the end, you're hungering and you're thirsting for God's righteousness. Look at what uh, Jesus says in verse um, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, the, for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We can, uh, we can relate to hunger and thirst, can't we? Have you ever met a little kid that is never thirst at bedtime? Somehow, at bedtime, their throats kind of tighten up. The, the water just disappears from their body and they are parched. There's no amount of water that satisfies a thirsty kid at bedtime, is there? We can relate to thirst. We can relate to hunger. Uh, uh, often towards the end of the service, the houses in the neighborhood are cooking lunch. And you can smell the smell. Or when we have service in t- inside and, and people are starting to warm up lunch and it's like, Man, I'm hungry. So we can relate this idea to this idea of hunger and thirst. And all the more could the people of Jesus' time, where food was at a premium in Palestine. So he gets the point across that we as meek followers of Jesus Christ are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the idea of righteousness is a major theme throughout the the We already saw that you, we as Christians are going to be persecuted for righteousness sake. We see in, later on in chapter 5 verse 20 that Christians must, must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. We are supposed to be more righteous than the, the righteousest person on the earth. Christians are to, be, to do acts of righteousness in chapter 6 verse 1. Christians are to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness and the assurance that everything that, will, that they need will be supplied to them. Matthew 6, 33. So that's what we do. That's what we are. We are thirsty people. We are hungry people. And what we hunger and thirst for is righteousness. Which begs the question, what is righteousness? The the set of words behind the English word righteousness basically gives the idea of conformity to a norm. So we are people who hunger and thirst... conformity to a particular norm and you know what that norm is it's not necessarily a set of rules that norm is a person and that norm is Jesus Christ himself that's the ultimate righteousness and that righteousness is codified in the Word of God so when we hunger and thirst for righteousness we are hungering and thirsting for what God says in his word That brings glory to God, glory to Christ, that demonstrates our faith in Him and we want to live that way. So we see that to hunger and thirst for righteousness includes at least three aspects. First, it means to long for a right relationship with God by being righteous before Him. If you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, you're longing to have a right relationship with God by being right before Him being what we ought to be. And that can only be done through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be able to do that. We have sinned, but God made Christ become sin for us, so that in Him, through faith, we might receive righteousness. And this is really at the center of the gospel. We are not righteous, but God provides that righteousness to us. That's why Paul says that he was not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is... God's power unto salvation, in which His righteousness is displayed. Secondly, we cannot welcome Jesus as our Savior. If we are if hungry and thirsting after righteousness, we cannot welcome Jesus as our Savior without being willing for Him to be precisely that, our Savior. We, we like welcoming Jesus as an add-on. Perhaps fire insurance, so that we don't go to hell. But we need to welcome Him precisely as our Savior. As as our Savior, Jesus saves us from the power of sin, but also the influence of sin. He not only brings pardon, but He also works in us to make us alive in our relationship with God. God. Grace reigns in us through righteousness in Jesus Christ. It is never apart from righteousness. So right living is what we hunger and thirst for, as well as forgiveness. If Jesus is truly your Savior, you also hunger and thirst for right living. That's part of it. That's just, that's just who you are as a Christian. If we don't, then our supposed longing for a right relationship with God is proved to be false. We cannot take Christ's gift of forgiveness and neglect His demands for right living. It's important for you to listen to me on this one. You cannot say, you know, yes, I want to be saved so that I can do whatever I want. No, you want to be saved so that you can be freed to do what God calls you to do. It is one of the great tragedies tragedies of our, of our day that we have come to believe in really cheap grace. A Savior who leaves us as leaves us much as if we were instead of actually saving us from sin. We seem to be okay with being saved and continue to live in sin. That's not, that's not being saved. That's, that's a savior that has no power. Our savior has saved us from the power and the influence of sin. And thirdly, and we're almost done. I know everybody's getting hungry. To hunger and thirst for God's righteousness involves our seeking to see it established everywhere. A Christian cannot be okay with unrighteousness in the world. In our own lives, we are to live with moral integrity. In our dealings with others, we are to develop right relationships. In the world we live in, we are to encourage moral integrity and right relationships, both by the work of evangelism and by all that we do to reform society and bring it into conformity to Christ's teaching now the, the work of evangelism and missions and the task of social reformation are not to be thought of as an alternative for the Christian it is who we are because we hunger and thirst after righteousness each each of this is an application of our desire to see righteousness prevail in God's world and that's why we pray that your kingdom come your kingdom come we want this to be Of reflection of God's character. And as we do that, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. The word filled there in verse 6 means satisfied. God will satisfy you as you hunger and thirst for Him. God will satisfy those who hunger and thirst after His righteousness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make Him your delight and He will give you the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart will be Him. It will be Christ Himself. And this is not something that we need to wait to the future. Oh, okay, we'll we'll, we'll live a hard life now. We hunger and thirst for righteousness so that in the future we'll be filled. No. God says you're going to be satisfied now. How's that? Brothers and sisters, we have God as our Father. We have the people of God as our family. Fathers and mothers to guide us and help us. Brothers and sisters to stand beside us. Sons and daughters to care for and encourage. In every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation, God has His people and they are all our family. In our own Christian spheres, we experience the restoration of true fellowship and friendship. We enter into caring, loving, healing, serving community where right and restored relationships can take place. The church of Jesus Christ. And these relationships may be only a foretaste of eternity, of heaven. But what a glorious foretaste to be satisfied by Christ in the body of the church. You're going, to, you know, you're going to say, oh, he's saying that because he's a pastor. But you cannot do anything better for yourself than being in church. Really. You know how often we think of uh, daily devotions as very important? And sometimes somebody might be asked, what is more important, uh, daily devotions or coming to church on Sunday? which in some ways is asking what's more important, the heart or the lungs? You know, which one do you want to keep? But think with me for a moment. Aren't we today in the church taught often that, you know, is your daily, private, personal devotion and prayer life every day that matters the most? Is that really the reality of the New Testament? How many people do you think in the New Testament had Bibles to read at home? None. Virtually none. The center of their lives was the community celebration of the Lord's Day together in the Lord's house. That was what drove their lives. Everything flew into that, flowed into that, and everything flowed out there. Now, I still love for you to read your Bible and pray every day, but there's some mystical thing that happens here when we are together by faith in Christ, that the Spirit of God is working in us and that we can see who we are called to love. Those are the people around you right here. So that in meekness... And in hungry and thirsting for righteousness, we pursue that, and God will satisfy us. As we meekly hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will satisfy us, and we have a foretaste of heaven. And so we come to the end of the Beatitudes. These these graces that we've been talking about are graces that only God could give. And we, we, we can't do these things on our own. Christ is not giving us, remember, the Beatitude is a list of things to do. The Lord is actually saying, this is what my children are like. All these things are true of you. They are poor in spirit. And in that poverty, I give them the kingdom of heaven. They mourn over sin. And in that mourning, they are comforted. They are meek. And in that meekness, I give them the world. And as we hunger and thirst after His righteousness... He fills us to the brim, and our cup runs over. If we will seek Him, He promises, all these things will be added unto you. You will be satisfied. So take the challenge of the psalmist. Taste and see how good the Lord is. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a good God, a God who blesses your people. Father, thank you for making us meek. Thank you for making us hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we pray that in practice, we'll do what you've declared us to be. Enable us to be humble followers of Jesus Christ who are desperately wanting righteousness in our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.